From the producers of Tony Erdmann comes Western, one of the most critically acclaimed films at the 2017 Cannes Film Festival. A taut and timely look at masculinity and xenophobia on the frontier of Eastern Europe, Western opens February 16th exclusively at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital producer. We live in uncertain times, but one thing is for certain. China is a superpower when it comes to the global market. And Hollywood has happily allied itself for the mainland, using this enormous market to make up for box office figures at home. Meanwhile, smaller, independent Chinese filmmakers have gotten a new venue in Pingyao, thanks to the efforts of Zha Zhengke, who has come to a compromise with government censors. You can read more about both of these developments in the January-February issue of Film Comment, and supplement it with this enlightening conversation I had with two frequent contributors who know the subject well. Andrew Chan, and I'm the web editor at the Criterion Collection. And... Elisa Ma, I'm the head of programming at Metrograph. And so today, in honor of Chinese New Year slash two new features in the most recent issue of Film Comment about independent and blockbuster film going in China, recent developments, let's say, we're going to focus on Chinese exhibition distribution. What's up with this censorship stuff? Uh, American co-productions and the burgeoning independent scene. So, Andrew, you mentioned in your piece the 2008 Olympic opening ceremony, which is directed by Zhang Yimou, was sort of like China's big coming out to the world, right? Where there was this idea of China as like the poor man of Asia. And this was this grandiose visual display that um, I guess they tried to do in Korea recently, but it's not as good. I still haven't seen that. You, It's not good. Could we talk about what Chinese film was like in the 80s and 90s and certain changes that have happened since then? Yeah, I I feel like uh, one of the sort of epochal shifts came in the late 80s when they reopened the Beijing Film Academy for the first time. But that was that was sort of like what allowed filmmakers to study cinema again in a real way, because before that, there was a long period of closure that was prompted by the Cultural Revolution. And also because film had always been regarded by the Chinese government as a, a form of propaganda, as a first and foremost, as opposed to, say, contemporary art, which the country views as more of a sort of product for export. Um, and so in that arena, I think there's a lot more flex for freedom of expression. Although you still have figures like Ai Weiwei who get, you know, right. locked up. And but it's sort of a chicken or the egg kind of thing because he wouldn't have his notoriety if he didn't play exactly. up on it at the mm -hmm. same time. Yeah, that's a sort of double-edged sword that I'd love to get into uh, later, too. But yeah, so the film production, including the production of 35 millimeter film, was all controlled by the government. And only through the official modes of production, through this factory-like churning out of propaganda films, could you be part of this filmmaking process. And then the reopening of the Beijing Film Academy led to this new uh, wave of young, spirited sort of inventiveness, you know, which led to the fifth generation, people starting to think about being a part of this international 
pedigree of artistic filmmakers as opposed to just you know being ushered into the national system. Mm-hmm. And Jia Zhengke was sort of part of the second wave the of second wave of yes. those filmmakers, and really one of the big sort of cultural shifts in Chinese filmmaking at the time was that this was a place at the Beijing Film Academy where young filmmakers could see the work of European filmmakers and American filmmakers. And even the historical films that were buried with the Cultural Revolution, you know, stuff that was made pre-revolution that had been locked up from uh, distribution and exhibition for decades. Now they they had all of that in locked up at the uh, Film Academy. And for the first time ever, this generation got access to all of that. Mm-hmm. And so you have stories where Jia Zhengke is always talking about seeing his first Bresson there. And of course, Bresson had a big influence on a film like Xiaowu. But he also talks about seeing Feimu's, um Spring, Spring in a Small, in a small town. town. Yeah. So having this, being which able to previously see... previously thought to be counter-revolutionary. Yeah, and decadent, yes. which is this word that you hear a lot with previous generations of Chinese cinema. But um, yeah, this is sort of what inspired him to make this film about Shanghai and the rich film history that I wish I knew. Is that the yeah, yeah. Um, that that sort of was covered up, you know, um, for people previous to his generation, just sort of trying to excavate that history of the city as a sort of filmmaking mecca of uh, bygone era. Yeah. And it's really through figures like Jia Zhengke that we know internationally in in America now we know of figures like Fei Mu and Xie Jin. I mean before you know they were not really talked about in western film critical discourse and it's really he's been such a huge advocate of his predecessors in a way even as he sort of went and attacked people like Zhang Yimou earlier on in his career he just by you know paying homage to these people he really resuscitated their legacies. Could you talk more about Jia Zhengke because his love of cinema and his sort of dedication to not just making his own films, but making sure that other people's work gets seen, gets made, gets heard, has a platform, no pun intended. Uh, could you talk about... Well, the- he would intend the pun, actually, oh. because <laughs> there were, I mean, uh, there were so many... So the festival that I went to, and I went um, last October, it was the inaugural edition of the Ping Yao International Film Festival the full name of which is Ping Yao Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon International Film Festival. Mm -hmm. But it was started, um, it's sort of his brainchild, and he'd been talking about it for several years as something that he wanted to do. And I was, when I heard that it was actually finally going to launch, I was really excited and slightly skeptical um, because he talked for many years about wanting to do this, but no one knew when or where this was going to happen. I'd actually been to Pingyao before, about 10 years ago, and it's a really small town. It's famous in China for being one of the best preserved ancient cities. It's sort of encircled by this ancient wall, which you see in platform. Have you been? No, I've never been. It's amazing. Yeah, it's more commercialized than it was 10 years ago. But um, it makes for a really strange and kind of surreal location for international film festival. But in a way... um, the festival itself, the lineup was very much hit or miss. But what was more interesting about the event was how it sort of represented this culmination of him trying to be, in a way, this 
Chinese Martin Scorsese, like someone who really is going to bat for a national film culture and all that that means. I mean, he's a very, gradually he's become more and more of a controversial figure. I think he inspired a lot of skepticism early on and for at least the past decade among intellectual Chinese circles who used to be sort of the lifeblood of the independent film scene there, people who really feel like he shouldn't have started submitting his material for approval with the censorship board, people who are, I think it's fair to say, resentful of the fact that he's never really had a brush with the government in the way that some other filmmakers like Lo Ye or other people, members of the sixth generation have had. But at the same time, there's this great love and admiration for what he's been able to achieve. And there's, on his part, there's a great sincerity in um, wanting to bring film culture, not just to the city centers, Beijing and Shanghai, where they typically reside, but to a small town like Pingyao, which is only a 40 or 45 minute drive from his own hometown of Fenyang. And it was a bold move. And it was really a representation and a culmination of everything that he's been talking about beyond his own filmmaking for several years now. Could you describe what independent filmmaking as it is today in China is like? Because, you know, a few years ago, there was the Beijing Independent Film Festival that was a venue for unauthorized films in China to a certain extent. And then in 2015, it was very abruptly shut down, supposedly by um, these organic protests. And then the festival was uh, revived in a certain way in New York, where a lot of these documentaries, a lot of the programming came over here to be seen. I guess, what are other support networks besides Ping Yao? How do people get into independent filmmaking? Well, I think that um, people of Dajanko's era are sort of this bridging generation mm -hmm. between, you know, what you have with the fifth generation is a direct response to the, the rupture of the Cultural Revolution. They remember China as a sort of largely agrarian uh, society, and they're, they're sort of responding to that huge historical juncture in their earlier work, whereas in Dajanko's generation, first of all, there was the advent of video, so that mm -hmm. made it cheaper and more accessible to make films um, on the fly. But also they were reflecting on a sort of post-Deng Xiaoping, slightly increasingly democratic or it's so it seemed in the 80s mm -hmm. and 90s milieu uh where you know there there were the first waves of pop music that was you know imported from mm -hmm. hong kong and taiwan there's that beautiful sequence of um teresa tang uh yes. being played in and i know platform. both of us could sing it right now but yeah. we're not going to <laughs> after this <laughs> um and and Zhao Tao is just like dancing ballet to this song and it's just, you have the sense that these people are experiencing culture that took them out of their sort of restricted milieu for mm -hmm. the first time and and so I've always heard Jia Junko talk about this with regards to you know feeling the need to first of all build up like enough of an independent scene around him so that it wouldn't be a, just a mere question of being outside versus inside of the mainstream, that there could be more of a middle ground for independent um, distribution 
um, an exhibition that wouldn't be, you know, like in his early days when he would have to literally stand outside the American embassy with a giant poster <laughs> protesting to let the government lobby for his film to be shown in the country. So I think that to your point, a lot of people feel like he's kind of sold out by trying to create this more sort of quote unquote official platform, not only for his own work, but for the work of up and coming independent filmmakers. But for truly independent filmmakers, it's always been an uphill battle. I actually went and visited the Beijing Independent Film Festival out in, I got to figure out where it was, but um, it's two-hour drive outside of Beijing, mm -hmm. you come to this, basically like it's just, it was all farmland when I went and visited about five years ago. And a lot of artists had taken up residence being part-time farmers and being filmmakers. There were also sculptors and painters living out there. It was extremely cheap. They had all been run out of the city. But, and I, I went there and I met with the organizers of this festival who said that, in order to submit their work to film festivals abroad, in, in, including, you know, Rotterdam or even Cannes, they would have to send somebody as a screener mule. This was before Oof. Vimeo was really yeah. like popular. Um, so they, they would have to literally send people just because they didn't trust the packages would not be open on their way out of the country right. and then discarded. And something that was talked about just among colleagues and other people in the pr international press who were there at the festival was sort of this rise of professionalization within the filmmaking community. Of course, since the 80s and 90s, you had the Beijing Film Academy, so already that was the beginning of a certain kind of professionalization. But um, now, you know, um, there are just w waves and a whole generation of film young filmmakers who have emerged for whom it does not it does not behoove them to go underground. The underground before used to be the only option if you really wanted to make interesting films. Now, if you just sort of play a bit of the game and don't make anything too controversial, you can actually get your film approved by the censors and exhibited. So... It's it's difficult, and even Jia Zhengke, when I spoke with him, he was talking about the lure of commercial cinema even more than independent filmmaking because now there is this huge industry that has sort of emerged in the past decade and there's a lot of money to be made mm -hmm. and there's really a dearth of big-name talent. Mm -hmm. And so that has sort of been diminishing the wave of exciting filmmaking that we've been seeing over the past two decades. So I want to definitely talk about more about the independent scene, but how did this sort of giant network of theaters, these giant multiplexes all across the nation, mostly in big cities, how did that happen? Is that sort of inextricably tied up in this larger uh, construction boom that's been going on in China? Or is it more due to like meddling by the Wanda group or is it like American interest? Because in the 90s and into the early aughts, you know, China had very strict restrictions on how many titles could be imported. And China was sort of known as this quote unquote hotbed of piracy. And now it's the second largest film market in the world. Like how did yeah. that transformation happen? Yeah. Although the quota is still, isn't it like 30-ish films it a year? It keeps changing every year depending on who's 
who's been appointed up top. It's also uh, and it's also largely dependent on how the Chinese domestic box office does too. Right. But I remember like um when I was when I was growing up in China in Beijing, my grandmother actually managed a movie theater. Wow. So I remember as a as a kid, my parents were both too busy working. My grandmother would come and pick me up from kindergarten and just like put me in this dark empty theater Goodbye, smelled, in. it smelled like toilets <laughs> because like the toilets toilet. were in the back and there were no dividers in the bathroom yeah. um but but they they could only show the same uh Jiangqing, you know gang of four productions over and over again and it was a kids movie theater yeah. but they were still the, all they ever showed was like the east is red yeah um wow. you know red detachment of women i know oh, yeah. those films like you know <laughs> i mean at the time there were just shapes and colors but now that I, i've gone back to them mm. i realize it's a really imprinting experience yeah. sitting there watching these films play over and over again but i i do think like this boom of multiplexes it really is a history that is simultaneous to this the construction boom mm -hmm. in the i feel like in the 90s it was all about shopping malls and then in the early aughts, it became about movie theaters. And it's actually pretty expensive to watch movies in China. It's not really adjusted to to the inflation. Like it's right. it's it's actually like it costs a lot of money if you're just a regular middle class person to go to a movie theater. So it's also a testament to the growing middle class um, that, you know, people are able to actually go there. Yeah. I heard that certain uh, retailers like Alibaba or Baidu or Tencent, they help subsidize ticket sales. But that was back in 2015. And that was sort of like a way to help incentivize people to buy other things. But is that no longer the case? Well, sometimes when you go to a movie theater there, you can go get your nails done or <laughs> I don't know. There's just all this other, other stuff that's there. And um, it's really it's like. I don't know when you go to a shopping mall for instance like you can go to like a skating rink or mm. a you can go like practice your archery or like go bowling <laughs> like and there's karaoke and there's yeah. that you know mm -hmm. so i feel like the movie and theater even is just Nick's piece, I think he mentions that you can go see like a superhero movie and then you go and ride the whatever on the characters, you know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Much more of an amusement park experience like Wanda in their heyday which mm -hmm. Uh, is sadly behind us now. <laughs> um, they were building enormous amusement parks um, alongside their big uh, multiplexes. You know, to them, it was sort of like one in the same endeavor. Right. And I mean, there's obviously the American analog, Six Flags, and they would have like a movie theater experience with all like the Nickelodeon characters or Mall of America. But it just sounds like Everywhere in China's Mall of America, that's great. Yes. That's wonderful. The malls are crazy there. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, it, there's a lot of high-end stuff too, especially yeah. in Shanghai, last time I went. But um, do you know whatever happened with the Qingdao Festival? Wasn't that a wonder? Yeah, um, that, was, that was actually supposed to, well, they, they started building these big movie studios near Qingdao. And I saw photos of these massive excavations, you know, starting to build these big movie studios. And the idea, I guess, was that you were going to have a big complex of movie studios and then like multiplexes. And it was this massive construction project uh, that Wanda was undertaking with borrowed money from the government. And they 
did build a movie studios. They made a couple of films there. They were all terrible. Uh, and uh, then the government froze uh, their uh, bank loans to Wanda because of all of the um, money that was being um, stored offshore. Mm. Like they've, they figured out that a lot of the purchases, very exorbitant purchases that the company was making overseas in, in Europe and in the US um, were actually a way to uh, store offshore money that was borrowed from the Chinese government. The chairman, quote unquote, of Wanda Film Group, or rather Wanda Group uh, was, um, you know, sort of, persona non grata in the country for for a brief moment he was made out to be a villain overnight mm. um who knows what actually went on behind the curtains there but suffice it to say it seemed like that festival was going to happen in a very grand scale and they were actually doing events in LA leading up to the festival launching and they even like had a they purchased shares in the new academy museum that's being built out in LA but in the end, it just never came to fruition. And uh, I think for the chairman, you know, the festival was always going to be this vanity project uh, and a money losing proposition. And when it when he became, you know, uh, you know, desperate for for money, he just canceled the whole thing. But things like this in China, it's like this overwhelming sense of like go big or go home yeah yeah <laughs> you know like when i was when i was first getting into programming like my parents were just like what is that what the hell is a film festival they had no idea and now now that you know film festivals began you know popping up in china now all of a sudden it's like spreading like wildfire there yeah. are so many film festivals in china now you can't stop them yeah and one of the interesting things about being at the Pingyao Film Festival was this weird tension between this go big mentality. So you would see that in the red carpet events. Right. And it was so chaotic. And one of the interesting things about my trip there was up until the very last minute, it wasn't quite clear whether it was really going to happen. I mean, no one actually said that, but they had pushed the launch date forward by about a week, which is really the only reason that I was able to go. And all throughout the press and all the little bits of, you know, messaging that I was seeing from Jia Zhangke himself was saying, like, you know, this is our first time doing it. It's Pingyao year zero, so it doesn't really count. This is kind of like a trial run. He was really trying to minimize expectations. So the first day that I'm there, I'm seeing like the carpet being nailed down to the to the floor. And apparently the um, buildings had not been completed until very recently. First night was in this open air stadium called Platform, named mm -hmm. after the film. And it was so cold, but they had brought out all the stars. Fan Bingbing was there. John Woo was there. Feng Xiaogang was there pop stars, TV stars. It was just a huge, spectacular event. Yeah. And then after the pomp and circumstance of that, really the rest of the festival felt like it could have been like a college campus kind of film series. Did they have to get a official approval for all the films that yes. were shown? Yeah. yeah. I think that's a, that's a sort of like eternal problem with film festival culture in China. Mm. Well, can we talk about what is and is not appropriate in Chinese film because I was listening to this actually very fascinating podcast uh, with an American guy who had gone over to China to like 
write screenplays back in 2015 and he was talking about oh you know the Chinese people you know they're not used to freedom and if you give them too much it's going to be hurtful to them like you know uh you can't give a whole you can't give a whole fifth of whiskey to a college student who's never drank before and it's like Comrade, comrade, you have learned very well from these, uh, your <laughs> sensory friends. Like it was very, like, it's very much the same line that people like Jackie Chan give about what the Chinese people need. Um, so there, there are certain things like ghosts are not allowed, but insane other types of violence are allowed. Nudity is sometimes okay. What, what sort of things are censors looking for versus to, to tamp down versus what they don't care about in order for a film to get a dragon logo which is the official stamp of approval by the government needed to have a proper theatrical release in in mainland uh you have to go through multiple sensor boards it's not just one in the past i i kind of thought that it was probably one very strict board but i was told that it was actually not the case there is a board for every cinematographic element <laughs> There's there's a board to evaluate the acting. There's mm. a board to evaluate the cinematography. There's a board for the screenplay. There's a board for directing. So so on and so forth. So imagine the level of bureaucracy that one film has to pass. And this recently happened with one of Feng Xiaogang's films, a very harrowing uh, sort of halt to the elaborate release plans of um his last film, Youth, which had a very successful um, tour through North American film festivals. And Feng Xiaogang himself is one of the country's biggest filmmakers, has made so many films with, you know, no issue with the Dragon logo. And this was sort of one of his forays into serious melodrama. And he was touring the entire country on this very elaborate press tour. And when he finally made it to Shanghai, that was the last stop of his press tour. And actually at Metrograph, we were, we had to go day and date with the Chinese release. Mm. And we were looking forward to the next day when we could show the film. And all of a sudden we get a phone call wow. from China saying, actually, the board decided last minute that there's a sort of sensitive topic being discussed in his film that would need to be edited out. Um, was it the war with Vietnam? Yes. Yeah. It was a portrayal of the veterans from that war, which they deemed sort of unflattering. So you actually saw Feng Xiaogang like at his last press conference bawling his eyes out because his film cannot be shown on the like millions of screens that were planned to to release the film. And um, the film had to be shelved for an indefinite period of time while they revisited the version and um, they end up resubmitting editing? it. Yeah, to wow. the to the censors. Because they there's no way to really get around that. You know, a film of that caliber, which, you know, it's sort of beyond independent versus studio filmmaking. Yeah, yeah. It's just such a Chinese cinema of that caliber it it really like exists because of gazillionaires who just want to invest yeah. in cinema because of you know they see it as a vanity project and um so i think maybe for that reason and because of his history 
there wasn't that fear that this would eventually be turned down. And what happened was that the release coincided with an anniversary event for the Communist Party. So they were worried that there was going to be all this extra press attention, you know, concentrated around that period of time. And so they decided to, quote unquote, make an example out of the film. From the producers of Tony Erdmann comes Western, one of the top five films of the year, according to Sight and Sound magazine. A taut and timely look at masculinity and xenophobia on the frontier of Eastern Europe, Western follows a group of German construction workers installing a hydroelectric plant in rural Bulgaria. As tensions mount between the workers and the local villagers, the stage is set for a showdown. A Cinema Guild release, Western opens February 16th exclusively at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. That was actually going to be my next question because, you know, you've described this insane bureaucracy that is analyzing supposedly every aspect of the film. Naturally, as a capitalist, my reaction is, well, why have one censor board when you could have five? You know, like it's like more more money for everybody. And there's so much money to be made. But yeah, it's this this is sounds like a very clear opportunity to make an example of somebody very high profile and be like, look, you think you have a certain amount of leverage. Well, you really don't because we can put a stop to anything you want to do at any time. Um, yeah, and that's sort of what happened to the chairman of the Wanda group, you know? Right, right. And well, I, it happened to Jia Junko with um, A Touch of Sin, right? Exactly. That was the first film in several, he'd made several features since The World in 2005 or whenever that was that completely passed. And this one was considerably more violent, but I'm sure he, you know, he had submitted his script and gone through all the stages that you need to go through up until having the complete product. Mm -hmm. And then it was pulled for a time. I think eventually it did get distributed. But um, yeah, so there's a certain level of opacity to the whole um, system, both within and without. And even when I was there at the festival, people were talking about the rumors, though, maybe Feng Xiaogang just wanted to increase the press on this. And this is just a publicity stunt that it was pulled. And, you know, yeah, it was not. That was heartbreaking it, for everybody involved <laughs> <laughs> and cost them a lot of money. Yeah. Know. And so, I mean, one of the interesting things to observe was just how this system creates this rumor mill. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean it, it's it's a it's a rumor mill with many gradients to it yeah. too because like if you if you ask somebody like Dadanka they'll say oh well like the Beijing Independent Film Festival people they they play up on the sort of level of censorship that's being imposed on them you know they actually make up stories like that in order to get more international funding. And that's what's been said of Chang Yimou and Cheng Kaige and, and Tian Zhuang Zhuang and that whole fifth generation too. I was talking with someone um, Chinese at the festival and they were saying, well, you know, they made up all those stories about being banned. And you know, <laughs> it's really its own, you know, it produces its own legends. Yeah, like who knows what's what's real. Yeah. You know? yeah. And now there's a new film law, which was just implemented last year. I can't remember what the official title is, but implemented by the People's Congress, which is the first ever nationwide film law that really covers everything from what's in the films to actually the personal lives of the people who make the films, but it doesn't really go into specifics. So adding yet another layer of opacity to the whole 
I mean, I, I really respect the whole Wong Bing project, somebody that, Andrew, you've written beautifully about. Thank you. Um, because he refuses to see himself as being part of any of this at all. I, I went and visited him in, in Beijing, and he said that, you know, the only people that he ever hangs out with are poets and painters. Um, he doesn't care much uh, for, you know, the current filmmaking scene at all. And he kind of dreads going to film festivals, but he only does it to to go get French funding, basically. A man after my own heart. <laughs> and, aren't um, we all after? Aren't despite we all looking? the fact that he also graduated from the Beijing Film Academy in that same generation as the sixth generation, and he was like close friends and collaborators with this guy who ended up going on to become the head of the China Film Archive and making docu like official documentaries about Zhou Enlai. So it's like you know, at one point they really split off in like yeah. radical opposite directions, and now Wang being still making films and ironically the other guy isn't but he's, he, an incredible, he's got a, such an incredible process worked yeah. out his consistency really flies in the face of the sort of about faces that you see in among chinese filmmaking figures like jia Zhengke, whose reputation has sort of gone in all these different directions or even someone like zhao liang who has mm. made incredible very activist films like Petition and yeah. Crime and Punishment, but then went on to make a commercial film together. Is that what it's called? Yeah. I haven't seen it. And was what I refer in the piece that I wrote on the Pingyao Festival about this one incident, controversial incident in which Jia Zhengke removed his film from the Melbourne International Film Festival in protest of them including a film about Rabia Kadir, who is a Uyghur activist and Zhao Liang was another one of those filmmakers who had a film in the Melbourne Fest Festival and decided to pull out probably through government pressure but there's this crazy episode with Ai Weiwei who he was friends with um, in which Ai Weiwei confronts him on video camera Zhao Liang and asks him why he did that and you have to understand this is a Zhao Liang is a man who made two of the best documentaries of the 2000s about very controversial issues. Mm -hmm. um, and for him to now sort of uh, be turned on in this way, in such a public way by the most famous <laughs> Chinese artist of his time, it just goes to show the kind of the toxic mm -hmm. um atmosphere and the way for generations Chinese cinema has been susceptible to these kinds of um, turns. Yeah. To what extent do you feel like those turns endanger Chinese film culture as it is sort of evolving right now versus the inevitable realities of the market? Because right now, the films that go to China are not very good. There's, you know, in when they're writing them, they have in mind like young people, gamer people. And so, and because there isn't like a network of. Talking about the American product that goes yeah, there? Yeah, American or, product, yeah. but then also to a certain extent, Chinese films as well, where there isn't like a system of film critics that sort of like vet these things or write about them beforehand, they're screened beforehand. And they have user review sites like Doba, which are, you know, anybody can review it. It's sort of an anonymous way to vet things, but it's not, it's not like here where people here 
oh my god great wall sucks do not go see it yeah. unless you want to like fry your brain it's some of it, it's a curiosity thing like you could really probably make up the gross of a shitty american film just out of chinese curiosity because there are that many people yeah so what is the greater threat here is it those sort of governmental slash interpersonal turns or is it like people are going to get sick of this bullshit and they're not going to go to the movies anymore I don't know. The the nefarious thing about the party censorship line is that it changes all the time. Mm -hmm. So when you, when there's somebody on top who, you know, is more sympathetic to these matters or more liberal when it comes to maybe they're a cinephile that, you know, like met a woman who studied film at Columbia University mm -hmm. or something, you know, and they're, <laughs> you know, it, it could be something random like that, which is a true thing that I've encountered once. And then that person will get appointed somebody somewhere else because it's a one-party system and you have no democracy. And then the next person who gets appointed will be super strict. And so you feel like there's always this six steps forwards, five steps back kind of thing where true progress seems kind of sometimes impossible. But at the same time, you know, like the, the economy is so fascinating and it's gone through so many unexpected changes there. And I think we have to keep in mind that we're within one or one and a half generations that saw the country go from being essentially pre-modern to being post-modern mm -hmm. in an incredibly compressed period of time. And that's completely changed not only film production, but also distribution and exhibition. Um, like now I know a lot of independent cinematechs are popping up around the country for the very first time, whereas before it would have been hard pressed to find, you know, uh, even a multiplex if you were in a small city. Um, so I think the, the whole screening culture is becoming more Baroque as a response to this growing middle class, to the demand for more variety in, um, in, in film experiences. And I think even though in recent years there have been more official channels through which to see movies, multiplexes, and art houses, there's still very much a rich culture of bootlegging and finding things online. I was actually just talking, and this is anecdotal, but I was talking with one of my friends from mainland China, and she was saying that people are going crazy about Call Me By Your Name there. And they've even named, like, they have a nickname for Timothy Chalamet, Tian Cha. Like, it's just crazy. Sweet tea. Sweet tea. It's crazy. And then she was sending me all of these um, blog posts and all this criticism from, like, all these savvy netizens who are able to find this. And it turned out that someone had just put up the link on their Dropbox and that's how people are seeing it because it definitely was not one of the 30 films that was chosen to play in the multiplexes. But this new generation I've found to be incredibly sophisticated, not only in finding the films, but also knowing what to look for. And so even though you don't have access to your Google and your Facebook and your Twitter, somehow these people are finding what they're interested in and well, I mean, Chinese people are nothing if not resourceful, you yes. know. 
I mean, the VPN thing is like just a given, you know, yeah. nobody can officially log on to Gmail, but everyone can. <laughs> and, and honestly, like the sort of changing phase of like film production has a lot to do with international co-production. And that mm -hmm. has a lot to do with the increasing uh, degree of fluidity with which people are able to move around the world, um, which is the... You know, it's a sort of relatively new phenomenon that occurred within the last 20, 30 years. It's also the history of the world, but it's just faster now. It's it's also like it's happening to China in an increased accelerated speed because yeah. of, you know, I mean, first of all, they didn't really have money to fly overseas back in right. the day. Um but but also these models of international co-production were never really like that sophisticated. And mm -hmm. now you have a generation of Chinese producers who understand how to work their way around the system in a way that produces, you know, really great results. Like we recently did a program of um, new Chinese crime films. And these are the sort of like middle uh, budget films not quite like the great wall let's say but <laughs> also not you know like scrappy indie diy films but films that have a certain uh polish to them that was informed by you know genre filmmaking rather than like sixth generation verite style um that respond to um, the corruption that these filmmakers experience every day in their society, but because it's coded in a sort of more bombastic aesthetic, there all these films were able to get uh, dragon logos and have a pretty healthy uh, theatrical life there after doing uh, their rounds in international film festival circuits. So right now, I think people are on the production side figuring out how to sort of have it all and mm -hmm. not have to choose whether to be on the outside or the inside. Yeah. And I mean, I guess I'm really fascinated by this alternative way people can be savvy because it does, you know, so many times... People in the U.S. complain about the death of physical media and it's like this loss of tactility. And yet here is a situation where there's more than just like I can't go to the store. It's literally you can only visit these sites. And the idea that someone can through a VPN or other some such technology really get around that is heartening to say the least and that you know it's not just going to be a generation of people growing up on yoga masters or whatever the hell that thing was <laughs> like the Jackie Chan uh Bollywood co-production uh it's going to be like some pretty you know sweet tea fans and that's that's great yeah like just not you know I remember when there were just a couple of like quote-unquote gatekeepers between independent Chinese cinema and and the rest of the world and we all knew that they were like these specific programmers or critics who kind of you know were anchored in Beijing or like were frequently visiting um, and meeting with these people because it was a much more closed off world um, back then but now and and oftentimes these people would be Europeans or North Americans you know, basically, I'm, I'm saying like white dudes, old right. white dudes. And they're um, not going to know these culturally specific things. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, and also they're, yeah, they're contextualizing the films in a very different way yeah. than, um, you know, a Chinese person who has their own voice and is able to articulate, you know, their, their own work can. And um, now I, I, 
I think it's sort of shifting a little bit. You have people who are educated overseas mm -hmm. um, who have had like very sophisticated uh, training were well viewed in international art house and are going back there and creating, uh, you know, a scene that is more reflective of, you know, the filmmaking culture and is able to sort of bring that culture overseas to um, to other audiences. Yeah. So that not everything is just, it has to be a dissident film exactly. in right. order to be in an international festival. Right. And, and you've seen some of that in one of my favorite films of recent times was Kylie Blues by mm -hmm. B. Gunn, which is not a distant film. It's very dreamy and surreal in places. And yeah. it's the kind of Chinese film that you wouldn't have expected in the previous decade. Yeah, right. exactly. Because this guy, I mean, he, he, he trained for television production. Mm -hmm. um, so he was, you know, he really loved this high polish that came with that aesthetic, but then he also wanted to make a crazy, undefinable film. I wonder, because I mean, I've, I haven't really thought this through, but I wonder the tributaries of Chinese cinema, what used to be um, very important to international Chinese language cinema were Hong Kong cinema and Taiwanese cinema. And now, you know, obviously we know that the Taiwanese New Wave was incredibly short-lived and there's no one really there who has replaced, you know, Ho, Ho Xiaoxian or Edward Yang. Um, and Hong Kong, of course, was sort of decimated by the handover. What do you think about them and how they are interacting now with well, mainland Chinese cinema. It's such a tragedy what happened to Hong Kong filmmaking, mm -hmm. you know, after but leading up to and and after the handover because you had an island of very very opportunistic <laughs> producers <laughs> who, you know, just got fed up with with film and through my dealings with distributors and rights holders um in Hong Kong I realized that a lot of these companies actually either were bought by China companies or they've gone on to deal in real estate because that's proven to be very lucrative. And at one point, film was just as lucrative as a sort of product for export for Hong Kongers, but now it's no longer the case. And so as filmmakers that, you know, we grew up sort of cherishing, you know, um, like, like the John Woo's of the world yeah, or John, yeah. you know, Johnny Toe is like, he's one person who's managed to maintain his independence because mm -hmm. he has his own production company. Yeah. Right. And who knows what other resources he's drawing upon. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> <laughs> or we do know. <laughs> That's a triad joke for all you people who don't pick up on that. <laughs> Listen, the, you know, boundary between art and life are very fluid for Johnny. <laughs> Um, but, He's but, wrapping up Michael Bay. <laughs> <laughs> giving him a hard time. But, but Choi Hark, you know, you you look at the films that he's making now, and it's really, really sad because he's going to China. Yeah. Same with John Woo. They're all going to China because that's where the production money is. But then they're signing these deals with extremely demanding and difficult mainland financiers who are expecting to get their money back ultimately. Mm -hmm. And I think the entire process is so detrimental to the artistic creative process yeah. that you look at the product that is being made 
under these circumstances and they're virtually unwatchable. Definitely. And Hong Kong, that whole industry was built out of churning out films like five a year, more than that even. And just being really on the fly, scrappy production values. Seven day wonders. And (laughs) exactly. And now where the stakes are so much higher when you're signing these kinds of deals, Mm -hmm. it really has changed the whole landscape of, I mean, there isn't really a, Cantonese film culture anymore no it's really sad and that was the dominant strain of not even just film culture but pop culture in the 80s and 90s for Chinese people so Mm -hmm. yeah now Jackie Chan's stuck repatriating our artifacts for the fucking government and Uh, yeah yeah that's really really sad I know he should be like flip kicking some guy in the face I don't think he can do that anymore (laughs) he's probably his his joints are probably decimated but but I have to say you know people who support Hong Kong filmmaking they they are out there but they're dwindling in numbers and I think Mm -hmm. that if anybody out there listening, you know, wants to like save Hong Kong (laughs) in general. (laughs) If you are umbrellas, everyone, (laughs) please, please write to the film comment podcast. Never going to be able to go back to China. (laughs) (laughs) We're so fucked. (laughs) Well, how about, well, that sounds like we could end it there. You're, you're all, we've all been put on lists. We're never going to go back to China. Get that visa. (laughs) Never. But before we close, it would be great if each of us could say a film that we've seen recently that we liked. I've been checking out a lot of the Tell Me series at Metrograph. There was just so many great films, documentaries by women, talking with other women uh, about female subjects. So on Friday, I saw Veronica and Growing Up Female as a double bill. And that was just a wonderful experience, funny and poignant and sad. And just seeing how it was weird. It was a weird experience because there were definitely some people in the audience laughing at parts of like, oh, ha, ha, ha. Isn't it funny that people used to believe that wives should act like that back then? And it's like, no, there's still plenty of people who believe that and teach their children that. And it's awful. So it was, but it was nevertheless just a really fantastic experience. Growing up female in particular, it was a very funny and knowingly funny, not laughing at its subjects documentary. So that's going to travel. So please check it out or demand from your local art house that they show it. Well, is it okay if I say also something from the Tell Me series? Oh, yeah. This is a feminist we podcast. Will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like create like a, a cult around these films that n- have never been shown before. Yeah. I, I saw Mimi for the second time during the series. And um, I have to say, it's such a buried treasure of a film yeah. it's a masterpiece it's that's what i was gonna choose yeah oh damn no no no, no. but <laughs> I, i'll talk about it after you do yeah. <laughs> well yeah i mean it's 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 made by this brilliant filmmaker by the name of claire simone who is really able to create extraordinary cinema from pretty ordinary subjects and with basically nothing you know the whole film was made by her and her alone, she was doing camera and sound. It was made um, 35 millimeter um, in the south of France, and she basically just follows this incredible woman named Mimi around the south of France. It's beautiful setting, uh, and Mimi just tells the camera about her life. So yeah, it's it sounds very simple, but it's it's a transformative experience. Yeah, it's. Uh- I will stick with Mimi just because it really blew me away. And 
this Tell Me series has been so incredible. I've seen probably mm-hmm. four things in it. And so big ups to our friend Nellie Killian, who mm-hmm. as an incredible programmer yourself, Eliza, I just think she, on that first night of Tell Me, she put together soft fiction as the 7 p.m., I think, and Mimi was like 9 o'clock or something. And just the double whammy of those two films, soft fiction being an incredibly distressing disturbing account of abuse from several different female subjects and Mimi, which has a much lighter touch, but also deals with some heavy themes. Um, It was just such an amazing feat of programming. And yeah, Mimi just blew me away because I'd never heard of it. I knew that it had played at um, true false, but I didn't know anything about it. Never heard of Claire Simone and, you know, I'm a big fan of what she calls this perambulatory narrative, people just walking. And, you know, I'm a big fan of it in literature. I love, you know, Sebald and Robert Walser and all those kinds of writers who do that. But it's an incredible, it's always associated with a masculine narrative, a very cerebral kind of masculinity. And this was just a completely different, just completely emotionally involving experience there's this incredible scene in which the camera is sort of far away from her and she's pacing back and forth outside of the entrance of this church and she's talking about her coming out experience and it's just I was bawling it's this needs distribution more than anything that I've seen in like the last year. Yes, and Mimi is all the more incredible because Claire Simone insisted that her subject, Mimi, wear a Hard Rock Cafe t-shirt. Oh yes, <laughs> that shirt is amazing. <laughs> like her whole look is very strong. Yes, yes, yes. So shout out to Mimi Chiola and shout out to Claire Simone, shout out to Nelly. Thank you both for coming. Shisha. Shisha. <laughs> You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rippold, with music by Greg Anji. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine, or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, and Kindle at filmcomet.com slash app. From the producers of Tony Erdmann comes Western, one of the most critically acclaimed films at the 2017 Cannes Film Festival. A taut and timely look at masculinity and xenophobia on the frontier of Eastern Europe Western opens February 16th exclusively at the Film Society of Lincoln Center.